there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to T4C. If you're interested in entrepreneurship and you'd like a jolt of inspiration to kickstart your day, my next guest is the human equivalent of a red-eye coffee chased with a triple espresso shot. But before I introduce you to Joshua Adler, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Monday mornings with a one-stop shop overview of the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my entrepreneurial Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And in this special K-Cup episode, my next guest, Joshua Adler, is going to share how he started a successful online business venture when he was still in college and then pivoted into the pharmaceutical industry even before he graduated. Today, Josh is the founding chief executive of SourceWater, the online marketplace and data hub for water in the energy ecosystem. If you're interested in learning more about SourceWater and how Josh built this cutting-edge business from the groundwater up, you're welcome to tune in to the main T4C interview I did with him, which actually dropped earlier this week. And because this is a K-Cup or mini episode, please note there is no formal goodbye with my guest. Josh, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am, Andrea. Thank you. In one of the articles that has been written about source water, it described you as, and this was clearly sort of an earlier iteration of source water as a matchmaker in the oil and gas industry. And there was a reason why they use that analogy. And it's because, as I alluded to a moment ago, your first professional venture with your high school buddy while the two of you were in college was an online dating site, the first online dating site called Amour. How did you start that, Josh? Where did that come from? And do you have any other advice for those young listeners who just have that fire in the belly about becoming an entrepreneur like you? Yeah, my first business ventures were in high school. And I guess I just had some inclination toward it. The way that Amor, aka Scholastic Matchmakers, got started was you giving credit where it's due. My business partner and friend at that time, Jeremy Elson, was kind of the computer whiz of our high school, uh, Whitman High School in Bethesda, Maryland. That's and, just a few miles from where I live right now. Yes, uh, that's right. And and by the way, Jeremy is now a senior software engineer at Google and went on to get his PhD in computer science and worked at Microsoft and at Google. And he's had his own journey, has been very successful. He was, as a hobby, um, doing a kind of a computer matching thing for Valentine's Day. This was in the late 80s at our high school. And there was no 
internet or no, certainly no commercial internet at the time. This was just you know, people writing in or checking answers on a photocopied survey questionnaire, which he would then type into a computer program he'd written just for fun and generate these matching lists that would be distributed to Valentine's Day at the school. Jeremy and I were good friends and were with a few other guys. You know, we'd hang out together and do nerdy things. I had had a couple of other sort of business ventures and was kind of the sales and marketing and business development kind of mentality. This was, you know, late 80s. I mean, Bill Gates was my hero. This was in the in the heyday, the rise of Microsoft. It was kind of the Bill Gates, Paul Allen duo or the Steve Jobs and Wozniak combo mm -hmm. from Apple was very much the mode of thinking for young early tech entrepreneurs. Of course, all these people dropped out of college to do their things. And so I was like, Jeremy, let me be the, the Bill Gates to your Paul Allen. Let's turn this into a real business and really blow it out. Let's turn it into a service that, that I'm going to take to all the other schools in Montgomery County, Maryland, and we're going to turn it into a huge thing. And so we agreed to put that together. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes in there because we had a whole adventure and we bought these like surplus Scantron machines that are used for scoring the SATs that were like they were going to throw away and I got them to send them to us for like nothing. So we had these machines in Jeremy's garage to scan <laughs> this stuff. And and we had all this, I, I got this used equipment from law firms that were going to throw away their giant, you know, 500 pound laser printers. And I was like, oh, we'll just come pick them up. Oh, and so we had these old laser printers. Hey mom, and, can I borrow the station wagon? You know, the, the lights are <laughs> flickering. And, and then when Jeremy went to college, he had all this heavy equipment in his dorm room and FedEx was coming and going three times a day and people just didn't know what kind of things he was growing in his dorm room, but it was all, you know, all this, all this equipment and machinery. So it got started with more of a mostly on paper thing that Jeremy was doing that we'd heard about and like some other kind of businesses did not in any kind of big scale way, just this filling out forms and matchmaking. But what happened was because I started marketing this in the first year or two, I was unable to get any schools other than Whitman to do it. And now we were in college and I was doing direct mail campaigns, just figuring this stuff out. I remember going to a marketing professor at the Yale Business School and just saying, hi, can I talk to you? This was pre-dot-com boom. I was like the only dorm room entrepreneur at Yale in the early 90s. To be fair, there might have been one or two others. This was pre-dot-com. It was unheard of. And it was just baffling to people. You know, why does this guy have three phone lines in his dorm room? Yale, even at the time, expressly prohibited running businesses out of your dorm room because they said it would jeopardize Yale's nonprofit status. Oh, goodness. <laughs> a totally different mentality from just like five to eight years later. It was completely different, unheard of. I had a pager. I and mean, there's only one kind of business at the time that involved kind of pager around. <laughs> this was basically pre-cell phone, but I had a pager. Um, and that was for customer service calls so that I could call them right back when they called our 800 number and said, why hasn't our box showed up or whatever it is? And I'd run back to my dorm room and call back that school and tell them, oh, I just called FedEx and they said it's arriving tomorrow or so-and-so signed for it. The reason it became an internet business is because Jeremy went to Hopkins. He was a computer science major there. He was starting to do stuff with what was called Gopher, which was a very early internet protocol before the web was a thing. And because we were 300 miles apart and in years three and four of this business, as we got kind of sophomore and junior college, I started to get traction getting other schools to use this. And so by the time we got to our 
junior years, sophomore, junior, 92, 93, we started to have dozens and then hundreds of high schools in, at some point, all 50 states plus Guam and Puerto Rico using this system. You know, the marketing started to work. And one of the challenging things about that business was we had absolutely no way of knowing what was going to come in on Valentine's Day. We didn't know if we were going to get five schools or 10 schools or 100 schools. And it kept going up each year. But it was always a surprise. And so that's really a hard business to run. And, and we were just figuring this out as we went along. But like suddenly, like the FedEx truck would show up at Jeremy's dorm room and there's crates of boxes. And Jeremy had to drop out of school for a semester because he just didn't have time to like run all these forms through the old surplus Scantron machines that we had, which were constantly jamming. And so Jeremy, fortunately, being very uh, mechanically engineering inclined, there was an epic case where like the worst blizzard in a decade was going on. And Jeremy had to like trudge through the snow in Baltimore to find the one hardware store that was open to buy some like microscopic screw that he needed to duct tape the Scantron machine to work when we were like two days before Valentine's Day. And every single customer, we had guaranteed Valentine's Day delivery, you know. <laughs> and what was the delivery? In the early days of it, we were printing and sending to them the pages that had every single student's Valentine's Day top 10 list with a description of their best match. And then what would happen is the student governments would, or other organizations, would sell those lists to the students for a dollar or two each. And we would get paid either half of what they sold and they would send back the receipts to us, or we would charge them a flat rate per list that we processed for them. We had a bunch of different pricing plans, which was another just we weird sort of bumbling around. So they would get these crates and boxes and sell them. What happened was if things got out of hand and we got to the point where we had hundreds of schools with hundreds of thousands of students who were using this system, often, I mean, 90% of them within just a few week period before Valentine's Day. And so we had this incredible crunch. Jeremy and I are 300 miles apart. He's in a dorm room. I'm in a dorm room. I'm taking our customer service and phone calls. He's doing all the processing. And it was just like, there's no way we're going to be able to scale this with the two of us in our dorm rooms, 300 miles apart doing this thing. We need to find a way to be able to handle an unexpected amount of what could be many hundreds of thousands of people in a short period of time and be able to process it and get that through the door without having any employees, without having any physical space. That's when we started implementing everything on the internet. And so we started having different offsite contractors who I never met. We connected everything with the internet for operations. All the information was flowing through there. We had an outside company that had just loads of printers because that's what they did, printing the stuff. We had a company that was doing data entry and, and scanning the forms. And then we had the FedEx shipping. And so we, we shifted to where we never physically saw anything coming in or going out. All of it was going through the internet from these seven different contractor sites. I draw on this you know, gigantic, like wall-sized flow chart that was like the flow chart in capital letters, you know, that we were always referring to. And then we took it a step further, which was to, wait a minute, can we get rid of the paper entirely? Let's have the students fill out the forms on this brand new thing called the World Wide Web, where you can actually see pictures on your screen, not just a blinking green command prompt. And we can have them fill in the forms on there. And then we can give them a password where they access it on the other side and see it on the screen. And in fact, we can show them advertisements from local and national advertisers who want to reach this demographic. And that's where the upside is here. It's not in getting 50 cents or a buck per student from 
half a million students. It's that for each one of those students, we can sell a whole bunch of ads on the other side. How do you price that? This is 1995. How do you price an ad shown on a screen where it's possible that only a few hundred people will see it or maybe tens of thousands will see it? We will know exactly that they saw it because they clicked on it. We know exactly who that person is and we know exactly where and when they saw that ad. And we know all kinds of things about that person because they filled out this whole survey about themselves and we decided what the questions were going to be. I love so much about that story because, again, it shows how your initial idea evolved. You had the great idea, but you had to evolve as different roadblocks and challenges emerged. You know, we had this business was growing really well. I had this idea that really this online matchmaking thing should be a the real business there is not selling the lists to the students for a buck each, but is to create this completely new medium of, of online advertising where we know exactly who's seeing it when and we can charge the advertiser only for the people who actually see the ad. This is pre-Google. I then created a media kit for selling this. I had a summer internship with a sort of venture capital firm in Bethesda, Maryland. The way I had gotten that summer job in itself is kind of funny because I had run ads in the Yale papers myself. I had run classified ads in the Yale papers looking for investors and partners for new business ventures because I had so many ideas and there were so many opportunities and I didn't have any money. I wasn't from that kind of family background where I have like a trust fund to draw on for my ventures and investments. Right. But I thought, well, I'm at Yale. There must be a bunch of other kids who are like that. So <laughs> I don't know them, but how do I find them? Well, I'll run ads in the papers. So I started running ads in the Yale Daily News and the Yale Herald, basically saying, you know, investors and partners wanted to explore new business ventures. You have to have some cash. Call Josh Adams. <laughs> and so um, I ended up getting only one phone call, <laughs> which just confirmed my belief that like no one here is a risk taker. No one here is an entrepreneur. These people are just bookworms, you know, right. like here I am taking out all the money I can on every credit card I can get. And I'm using it to finance the working capital for this business. And I got one call from the then Washington, D.C. alumni president for the Yale Alumni Club of Washington, the late Ted Greensfelder. His daughter was in my class and had gone to a, a private school in Washington. And so he had hosted a pre-admission event and he remembered my name. And so he said, are you the Josh Adler who went to Whitman High School, who's in my daughter's class? And I said, yeah, that's me. And he said, what kind of business ventures are these? And I told him about the different things I was working on and Amore and, and some other stuff. And uh, he then said, well, next time you're in town, uh, there's a guy you should talk to. You guys have some things in common. You might hit it off. And so he gave me the number for a guy, Alex Pollock, who I didn't know what he did or who he was, just that he had gone to Yale sometime in between when Ted was there in the 60s and when I was there in the 90s. And I called up Alex and I said, hey, we have a mutual friend, Ted. He said, we should talk. And Alex was like, okay, talk away. And I said, well, I got all these business ventures. And Alex basically cut me short and was like, look, what do you need, money or a job? And I said, I don't know, both? Uh, I actually said to him, because I said, well, what do you do? And he said, well, we have a venture capital fund and we invest half a million to $2 million in mostly in healthcare tech ventures. And I actually said to him, I was like, you know, honestly, I don't know what I would do with 
$500,000. Like, I don't have anything expensive enough to sell you. I, I know how I would use 50000 but I don't know what I would do with 500000 What's this about the job? And he said, well, we've got an internship. I said, does it pay? He's like, yeah, eight bucks an hour. I'm like, okay, I'll take it. So I ended up going there for the summer. And what I did there was two things, which was I started helping out a healthcare technology startup that just had the founding CEO. There was no one else that Alex's company had basically put seed money into to get going. And so I was sort of interning for him and helping him out. And at the same time, I put together all of these media kits to try to sell online advertising for the first time, maybe that anyone had ever done it. And I was FedExing these fancy media kits that a student friend of mine who was a great designer, by the way, is now like the head of global marketing for Ralph Lauren Polo. So we created this amazing media kit, which was super cool. It was like a deck of cards with all this neat stuff on it. And I didn't know what a media kit was until I talked to a marketing professor and was like, how do people sell ads? And he was like, well, there's usually like a media kit where it has like a cost per thousand. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, what are those costs per thousand? You know, and I just made them up. And so I was FedExing this to every single VP of marketing at every big consumer product or service company that might ever sell something to teenagers. And then I'd FedEx it and then I'd try to get them on the phone and then I'd pitch them on buying the advertising on a more. And almost always the answer was, this is intriguing, but we don't buy advertising on anything that reaches less than 10 million people. And I don't want to reach 100 people or 1,000 people and know for 100% sure that they're going to see it. I want to reach 10 million people, and I don't know whether they're going to see it. You buy a TV ad or you buy a magazine ad, and that's how the industry works. They needed ways to spend large amounts of money, but didn't know whether the money was being spent well or not. And I was saying, spend a small amount, but know for sure that it works. And so I got a few advertisers, but it was really small. It wasn't it was really small test cases. Like I got Dairy Queen to do some local stuff. I got Columbia House Records, if you remember that, to do oh, some yeah. stuff. At the same time, I was getting involved with this healthcare startup that was creating miniature wireless vital signs monitors first for helping babies monitoring infant apnea. The idea was to create the first miniature wireless infant monitor ever. And the way that this was done at the time was these giant boxes that looked like a VCR with the cables coming off from the wrap around the baby. And it was, they were horrible. Basically, when I was in my senior year of college, the founding CEO of that startup medical device company was really trying hard to convince me to come join him as his, he was a, he had been a military guy to come join him as his lieutenant and that I'd take over for him in a few years. And this was going to be a billion dollar company. And, you know, honestly, I looked at this and said, well, I could be the king of online matchmaking, which is not really a thing. Right. <laughs> and, not yet. you know, and I'm doing the numbers and I'm just saying, even if we got every high school and college student in America to do this, it just seems like it's maybe a $20 million a year business at most. Or I could be a leader in the you know, medical technology industry, which is the single largest component of US GDP, speaking as the economist, you know, multi-trillion dollar industry, and I'm helping save babies and old folks. And, you know, online matchmaking seems a little seedy, you know? Um, so I can be doing something good and it's a massive segment of the economy and I'm sure it's going to be huge and this is a great opportunity and there's already a little bit of venture backing for it. So we sold on more for modest amount. I mean, we were making in the you know low to mid six figures a year, two of us college students, 1996, 21 years old, half owners, no cap, no investment capital. This is just a little bit before the internet became a big deal. And so three years later, four years later, that same company, even with those same utilization metrics, 
probably would have been worth at least $100 million, you know, maybe, maybe multiples of that. And I sold it to a French company that really, really wanted to own the domain Amour.com because that's love.com in France. And they took it and they continued the matchmaking service in Europe. And I think it's still a matchmaking service in Europe. So I was like, okay, I'm jumping with two feet into this medical device industry. Well, um, you know, we didn't have time for that whole story, <laughs> but <laughs> it raised a lot of venture capital. And I learned that what my attitude about business had been was, it's just fun. You know, you're solving problems every day. You're making stuff work, facing challenges, you're doing things. And that was my experience with the internet startup that I ran all through college. Then I got into the medical device industry and it was like, wow, this is real slog. You come up with a good idea and then you got to spend five to eight years before the government will let you try to sell it to somebody to see if it actually works or not. Maybe it doesn't. (laughs) And in the meantime, whole journey there, ultimately a journey of failure. We raised a lot of money for it, which seemed like a success, but it wasn't because we weren't selling product. And we got through FDA approval, EU approval, clinical trials, all things that I ran for the company, which I hated doing. But someone had to do it, so I did it. And I, I designed and ran the clinical trials and the government approvals. There's only, at the time, you know, probably only a handful of people in the country with those, that particular experience and skill of taking a new technology medical device from concept through clinical trial through FDA approval. Really valuable skill. Really valuable experience, which I knew I would never use again. Because I hated, hated doing it. it. Oh, <laughs> you God. took the worms out of my mouth. Such a, you know, and it was like, I wasn't bad at it because I'm an analytical person and I'm pretty good at working with numbers and stuff and creating procedures. But it was just so stultifying, you know, and I just kind of lost the kind of the spark and the fun of creating new businesses and, you know, just solving problems and doing stuff and going. And it's like, before you can do anything, you need to check to see what the regulations are. You need to consult with the lawyer. You need to check with the consultant. You need to file the application. You need to go through this whole procedure and you can't change the procedure, even if it makes no sense at all. I mean, one of the bizarre things about, it may have changed because I've been out of the industry for a while, but one of the bizarre things about the medical device approval process was fundamentally what you're doing in what's called the 510K process is you have to prove to the FDA that the new amazing, awesome thing that you're coming out with that's going to save lots of lives is in no way fundamentally different than something that they already made the mistake of approving and allowing out into the market. (laughs) Your job is to prove that your new thing is actually not new. Mm. It's weird. And so (laughs) it's counterintuitive and you have to think in these bizarre ways. It's not healthy (laughs) for the, for the entrepreneur. So, Uh, so is the, is the end of that story that the medical device went on to become a huge success? Oh no. We got a lot of patents. We got approvals. We signed business development deals around the world. I became our VP of business development. We never got any real sales before we ran out of money for the last time. And we'd run out of money a few times along the way. We'd raise more money. And then we got to 2000, 2001. You had the combination of the dot-com crash, which made venture capital just disappear. And then we had 9-11, which made the whole economy freeze up for a period of time. And we were among the countless small companies that went out of business in that time. Many of them dot-coms, but many of them not dot-coms because you just couldn't raise risk capital to do anything during that period in 2001 into early 2002. And that's when we ran out of money for the last time. 
at that time I was living in Dallas, Texas. I'd been at that job for about five and a half years, moved me from Yale when I graduated to Colorado for about a year where we had an engineering facility to Washington for about a year and a half, and then to Dallas for about three years because we had new investors in Dallas who wanted us to be in Dallas. And then I was basically, you know, end of 2001, I was unemployed in Dallas, Texas. We had no money to pay me or anybody else. And I had a nice little house there and a nice little BMW convertible and had plenty of time to make myself omelets for breakfast and sit around the bathroom and wonder what I was going to do with my life. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.